Hello everyone and a warm welcome to this brand new Science and Life webinar series on rare diseases, their basis and burden. I'm Sean Sanders, Director and Senior Editor for Custom Publishing at Science. In this new nine-part series that will run through the remainder of 2021, we will focus in on a topic that is often ignored but is critically important, that of rare diseases. The term is something of a misnomer since collectively um, the approximately 7,000 disorders that come under the rare diseases banner in total affect about 300 million people globally, including 1 in 11 Americans and over 30 million people in Europe. Our discussion today will be intentionally broad as we introduce you to the most critical challenges for patients, doctors and families facing rare diseases. These include limited testing, lack of diagnosis or inaccurate diagnosis, lack of research coordination and limited availability of treatment, to name just a few. In subsequent webinars, we will delve more deeply into these individual topics, so please look out for those events. Uh, finally, a thank you to Foundation Ibsen for sponsoring today's event and this series. Okay, now I'd like to give our guests a chance to introduce themselves. Uh, perhaps we can start with Dr. Tina Irv from NIH. Uh, over to you, Tina. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Um, I work in the at NIH in the Office of Rare Disease Research. I, or the Office of Rare Disease Research is located in NCATS, which is the National Center for Advancing Translational Science. The program that I work most closely with and happily with is the Rare Disease Clinical Research Network, which is a network of consortia. We have 20 different consortia that study at least three different rare diseases, and they work very closely with the patient advocacy groups, the research community, and NIH staff. Thanks. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Tina. Uh, next, we'll go to uh, Durhain Wong-Riga. Durhain? Thank you very much, and I'm so pleased to be here. Uh, Durhan Wong-Rieger, I am first and foremost a parent of two children born with rare uh, conditions. My daughter, in fact, has never gotten a diagnosis, so it's always been a matter of trying to kind of decide what to do and certainly having no roadmap in terms of what prognosis might be, though she's doing great. My son was actually diagnosed from birth and actually had a pretty established uh, plan in terms of what his uh, follow-up and treatment should be. I'm also a psychologist by training and profession, though for the last, oh good gosh, the last 20 or so years I've been working full time as a patient advocate. I am president and CEO of the Canadian Organization for Rare Disorders, um, which is a national umbrella group for rare diseases. I also serve as chair of the um, Council for Rare Diseases International. I am um, lead on the patient advocacy constituent for the International Research Consortium on Rare Diseases, where in fact the patient um, community works alongside of, uh, of, of funders, alongside of researchers in um, directions for diagnosis and new treatments. I also have a number of other international groups that I work with, the Asia Pacific Alliance for Rare Diseases Organization, where I'm president, and also I am uh, the patient advisor into the APEC, the Asia Pacific Economic uh, Coordination on uh, the Rare Disease Framework. So I have a lot of roles internationally, but really work a lot also with patients on the ground here, especially in Canada. Lovely. Thank you, Darren. Uh, our third guest is uh, Dr. Peter Merkel. Peter, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. I am a professor of medicine and epidemiology at the University of Pennsylvania here in Philadelphia in the United States. For the last 25 years, I've studied two families of rare diseases, 
scleroderma as, and even more so, vasculitis, which is a whole series of different disorders. I have the privilege of taking, patient, taking care of patients with these rare diseases, and I've studied the science of actually how to study rare diseases. I am the director, international director of the Vasculitis Clinical Research Consortium, which is actually a member of the Rare Disease Clinical Research Network that Dr. Erb spoke about, an NIH-sponsored international research enterprise, and we do clinical trials and other types of translational research and training. I also co-direct with a patient, an online patient research portal, and we work very closely, I work very closely with patient advocates such as we have on our panel today to advance rare disease research. I'm sure we'll all talk about that important partnership. So I've been studying rare diseases uh, for a long time and I'm happy to be here, thank you. Right, thank you, Peter. And the fourth screen on my box is uh, Flaminia Machia. Uh, Flaminia, welcome. Thank you for inviting me today. So I'm Flaminia Macchia. I'm the executive director of Rare Diseases International. I've been active in the rare disease space for the past 20 years. I was for 15 years at Eurordis, which is the European organization for rare diseases, and then for five years in the pharma company. Um, and now I'm back to the patient advocacy side. Thank you. Great, thank you, Flaminia. So uh, let's get started with our discussion. Uh, I'm going to start with a, a very basic question. When, when I started looking into rare diseases, it's not an area that I knew about. My background is molecular biology and cancer research. Um, what, what I found interesting is there are many different definitions of rare disease, uh, depending essentially on which country, country you're in. So uh, Peter, maybe we can start with you. Could you help us understand what defines a rare disease? Yeah. So. A rare disease actually is interestingly defined by different countries or regions. Rare disease in the United States is defined as a disease with a prevalence of 200,000 people or less. Or it's a disease that is relatively rare and understudied and for which we need more therapy. Rare diseases are also referred to as orphan diseases in some countries. And the term is often used interchangeably, but it's not necessarily exactly the same. And um, I think different countries do it. I would say this about a rare disease. Um, a disease is rare until you or someone you love gets it. And then all of a sudden you know a lot about it and you're looking around, but it is a, it can be difficult. And so that's why rare diseases have been singled out for study, both because we need to advocate for those patients and scientifically it is extremely helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, Durain, let me, let me come to you. Um, I, I remember watching your YouTube talk um, that you gave about rare diseases and your work in Canada. And I, I saw you shaking your head a little bit when, when Peter mentioned orphan, the, the term orphan diseases. I know you have some thoughts on that. Yeah, and it's not a disagreement necessarily, but there are no such things as orphan diseases. And rare diseases, as Peter, I think, has indicated, means a whole host of different things. And when we work globally, we know every country will have its own definition. I mean, in fact, uh, you go to Taiwan, you go to China, rare diseases, whatever the, uh, the, uh, the country designates as a rare disease. Um, it does have the commonalities, I think, as Peter says, is that they are they affect usually small numbers of people. They're notoriously difficult to diagnose. They may be severe. They may be progressive, which is built into the European definition. Um, but um, they are also undertreated and oftentimes uh, neglected. Uh, the commonalities, again, you know, are, are greater than the differences when we go across countries. And I think um, from a patient community, we've kind of convinced people it isn't worth worry about what's the definition of a rare disease. You know, a rare disease is, as Peter says, is something that 
will affect a few number of people. It's a commercial term, if you know, it originally came from the U.S., who basically said these are number of diseases for which we cannot get, you know, drugs developed because it's not commercially viable. And they were called orphan drugs. The diseases aren't orphans. It's the drugs that are because companies would get them to a certain point of development, then they leave them on the shelf. They'd orphan them. You know, so I think that's the challenge. And so in different countries, you know, it does mean different things. Even within one country, you will not find from a policy level to a clinical level to an access level that the same definition is used. Knowing always it's difficult to diagnose, difficult to treat, and definitely deserving a whole lot more in terms of every spectrum from, you know, diagnosis to to access to uh, care and support. Mm -hmm. Flaminia, could I ask you to jump in with uh, your perspective from the European side of the, the world? Well, it's not a European side, it's a more international one. For mm -hmm. sure, the impact of a rare disease is very much linked to the rarity, which means that there is, generally speaking, a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, a lack of expertise, and it's really the impact on people's life that are uh, of most interest to us. Thank you. Right. Um, so, Tina, I'm going to come to you with the next question um, about how, how rare diseases arise. Um, I think um, it seems to me that a lot of what I've found in the research is about genetic rare diseases, but there's also non-genetic rare diseases. So I wonder if you could talk about the types of rare diseases we have. Uh, I mentioned at the start there are um, about 7,000 of them. So there are a lot of different types of rare diseases, and there are also many different causes of rare diseases. Um, the majority are thought to be genetic, and these are directly caused by changes in the genes or the chromosomes. In some cases, genetic changes that cause the diseases, are they come from one generation to the next, but some are spontaneous. So you don't know if and when all of a sudden you have a child with rare disease or you yourself develop a rare disease. It can come out of the blue. And, and I think that's sometimes those are the cases that are the hardest to identify and diagnose. In other cases, they, you know, it can just be random. Um, many rare diseases include infections. Some are cancers. Some are related to autoimmune diseases that aren't inherited. And every day we're looking for more causes and different ways to understand, you know, where these disorders are coming from and what causes them. Mm -hmm. I would add um, rare diseases are disproportionately represented by genetic disorders because even one small mutation can cause disease, but it is by far not the full story. And I think it's important to, as I agree with Tina, there are a lot of genetic rare diseases, but there are a lot of rare diseases that have, do not have a genetic basis or do not have a solidly genetic basis. And I think that often puts people sort of wondering why, why did I get it? Why did my family have it? And it's sometimes there are other reasons. And just as with common diseases, there is a mix of a genetic component and environmental component and infection component and various things can cause disease. And then it's the definition of what is diseases. We keep slicing them up by saying this subgroup might have this genetics and combined with this environment. And so it gets pretty complicated. Genetics has been a tremendously powerful tool for us to understand, diagnose disease, and actually help lead towards treatment. But it is one of the many components. And I think it's important be, uh, for people realizing that we study it across because the, the treatment benefits may come in a variety of ways. And, and it, oh, 
I'm sorry. And, and Peter, that kind of jumps off onto when you're counting how many rare diseases right. there are is, you know, are you lumping or are you splitting the diseases? Because some disorders have a spectrum that you can have the same disease that's on a spectrum and some people will count that as one disorder and others will split each different gene defect into a new disorder. So that's where it also becomes complicated in the counting, the identification of the disease and the treating of the disease. If I can just jump in, I think those are amazing, really important aspect as well. I think to recognize that, um, as you say, it depends on how you want to define it, you know, how, how, how genomically specific you're going to get. That could make a difference. And some of the more common diseases, as everybody knows, we're now getting these subgroups that in some respects, they actually become like rare diseases for all the reasons that we talked about. So that also complicates it, especially in cancers as we're starting to talk about more precision medicines. I think there is an inordinate um, bias towards genetically uh, um, you know, causative uh, rare diseases because we can now with the genetics of what, the way they are, we can actually begin to diagnose them, we can define them, whereas the others are still much more difficult to get to a diagnosis. And we do have patients who come to us in our organization and says, how come you're forgetting us? You know, we do not have a genetic disease and nobody's talking about us anymore. And I think that is a very, very important case. And I think as Peter says, many of these genetic diseases are also very much influenced by the environment. So that makes it also very complicated in terms of uh, rare diseases. So I think we risk being very reductionist if we just start to look at what are your genomic definitions and we just focus all of our attentions in terms of being able to do genomic sequencing and getting finer and finer definitions based on just genome genotyping. And we'll miss some of the bigger things um, that I think we're all concerned about. And that is what's the impact in terms of patients, what else do we need to do? So I think all of those things are hugely important. The other thing to say is that um, two important things is that about 95% of persons with rare diseases will have already been identified within the most common rare diseases. So that's important. You know, many of the other diseases we have are ultra rare. The other thing is that we're missing a lot of rare diseases because we're not looking at it. Most of the work has been done in North America, Western Europe, rare diseases in Africa, rare diseases in Asia, rare diseases in Latin America. We're missing many of those because nobody's looking at them. So we also have patients who are saying, what about us? So I think, you know, as researchers, as patient advocates, as, you know, whatever we're trying to do here, we, I think, are being increasingly pressed to say, talk about the equity in terms of uh, identifying working with rare diseases. We have rare, rare and neglected, neglected rare diseases, even among the rare diseases. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Flaminia, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, just to say that indeed, if we focus only on the genetic uh, uh, rare diseases, then we would leave aside a good 30% of the population, which because 30 a good 30% of rare diseases are rare cancers, rare infections, rare poisoning from food, mm. from medicines, drugs, chemicals. So just to underline, yes, uh, it's broader. Great. So just to sort of bring, bring this down to earth as well and to give some examples. So diseases like Zika and Ebola, autism, are these regarded as rare diseases? <laughs> Over to you, Peter. <laughs> well, I, I think we wish, we wish that these diseases become rare diseases. Let's put it that way. I think emerging infections, as we have all seen in the past 12 months, can go from one person to a worldwide pandemic. And so I think um, 
Zika was certainly not rare when it was raging through the world. Um, and hopefully it'll now become rare again as there's immunity, but I, I don't think we necessarily know that. Ebola is a, a very disturbing and worrisome disease that is rare in that on a global scale, but there's actually a mini outbreak happening now in parts of Africa, and we have to be very concerned. In that area, it's not rare. And mm -hmm. so rare is your perspective. And um, it's rare in Philadelphia because we haven't seen a case, but it's not rare in the world. And so I'd be worried about it. I think infectious diseases, Sean, is really a separate issue. Um, what, uh, and I would almost take it out from that, that idea. There are rare infectious diseases but they have sometimes some of our more common diseases have were once thought to be rare. Hmm. So we need to be vigilant about how we how we address this. But, but it means, and, and oh, sorry, is that um, we've got diseases that were once common that have now become rare. Polio. Yes, right. All of these things we can look at them as real successes, right? And the goal is to keep them very rare. Mm -hmm. We sometimes forget that lesson. Polio is just about was close to being eradicated and still not. And we could we could do that. And so we have, you know, smallpox has been eradicated. We can do this if we work on a worldwide basis. Mm -hmm. We have to think beyond our own, our own fences. Mm -hmm. And and I will say, um, in relation to the autism question, wow. is there a lot of rare diseases that fall under the umbrella of autism, mm -hmm. where you have uh, disorders like fragile X syndrome, where um, autism it co-occurs with a rare condition. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, a lot of autisms have an underlying cause, uh, a rare disease, Rett syndrome, and you name it, uh, many, yeah. Mm -hmm. It and can be a symptom. Yeah, we're very excited by some of the work that's actually, I think it's Tina says, going into autism to begin to actually identify many of the subgroups within autism. We kind of lump them all together. Another common one that we kind of lump together is epilepsy. Epilepsy is not epilepsy is not epilepsy. There are many specifics there. And the risk is when we lump them together, then we're not going to get to being able to treat them. A real common, not common, common disease, but um, is Parkinson's disease. Again, within it, I think we're going to learn, I mean, that there are many subgroups within Parkinson's and we are going to have rare diseases, even though using that common definition, we don't think of, you know, Parkinson's as a rare mm -hmm. disease. But it's also, I just wanted to add that, you know, lumping together is not always a bad thing because you can learn from each other. So if you are looking at the different types of epilepsies, you know, where do they stem from? Do any of them have common causes? And by working to having the rare disease groups work together, they can find answers to bigger questions. The same with the autisms. Um, a lot of the neurological disorders have very similar symptoms. And if they uh, communicate and the researchers talk to each other, they can uh, have a better chance at finding answers a lot of times. Mm -hmm. I'd like to emphasize that's a terrific point, Dr. Irv says. I think that everyone likes a name. People want to have a name for a disease because they want to know what they have, and then hopefully that'll get closer to an answer, which is unfortunately not always the case. But just because we give things names doesn't mean we completely understand them for sure in medicine. And it may be that there are scientific pathways, there are molecular pathways that lead to what looks like diseases A, Q, and Z, but actually they're not separate. They probably should be talked about as sort of pathway, you know, alpha. Mm -hmm. And they're the same. I mean, there was recently a, 
publication in the New England Journal of Medicine from investigators at the NIH uh, for a newly discovered, if you will, disease, which actually is a genetic disorder that is acquired during people's adult time. And it linked a variety of people of people with a variety of what was thought to be other diseases. And it was because they finally were able to see the link, the pathophysiologic link between these diseases, they could do it. They were called this disease and that disease, and they probably all have this one other disease. So I think we learned from that. We can get a little too rigid about names and categories and miss what we need to know, which is what's the science, what is the pathophysiology? What's causing this disease at this time? It may change over time. And how do we sort of address it medically, diagnostically and medically mm -hmm. to make people live and feel better? But it does work the other way around, you know, and I, I say that because my husband has Parkinson's and we know that every single time he gets prescribed something for Parkinson's, we have to kind of look at him individually as to whether or not this is going to have benefits, whether it's going to have greater risk, because it's been studied in Parkinson's. But we know that, you know, within that Parkinson's designation, there are many different kinds of people with Parkinson's. There are many kinds of, you know, pathways to that disease. So it, you know, it works both ways. Right. And so for us, you know, knowing that, of course, we are highly, you know, kind of vigilant whenever something new comes up because we don't know, you know, exactly how similar are the people that are identified as having Parkinson's to his very specific Parkinson's. And we hope that someday we'll get a very specific def you know, a definition of what the different kinds of Parkinson's might be. So it works both ways. I agree very much, though, that we miss sometimes the, uh, the similarities across diseases because we are so very keen to be able to pinpoint a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So this, is, this has been a great discussion because you've, you've really touched on some of the, the major challenges that I, I did want to talk about. Um, the one that we, we haven't really spoken a lot about uh, is uh, testing and the role that um, doctors play, uh, primary care doctors in identifying potential rare diseases. So um, Flaminia, maybe I'll, I'll come to you with this one. You know, what are your thoughts on education of doctors and also improvements in testing for rare diseases? Where, where do we need to do the work? Well, this is actually uh, one of the initiatives of Rare Diseases International, uh, partnering with the WHO is to create, to develop the concept of a collaborative global network of centers of expertise around the world in order to pull together the existing scarce and scattered knowledge into one global network. So to collaborate, uh, in order for you know doctors to be educated uh, everywhere in the world in a more equal way so that we can develop also the diagnostic capabilities everywhere mm -hmm. right uh, peter do you want to add anything I, I would i i agree with that i think um this brings up a lot of important issues of education and access uh to proper care uh, we, we range from uh wealthy, well into you know, countries with big infrastructure, access to lots of specialists to countries where you can't get basic care, unfortunately. And so I, am, I, I think it's actually unlikely that we're going to be able to educate all primary care physicians to understand rare diseases. But the one of the biggest rules as a practicing physician is know what you don't know. And when you identify something that I don't know what this is, you get help. You go to a specialist, you go to some, one of your colleagues. I think that's what we really want. And we need to make sure patients have the ability to get that help and to go to specialists. And that can be 
cardiologist, a rheumatologist, uh, you know, a surgeon, it depends. It can get more and more specialized um, depending on the problem and people tend to keep hunting till they find an answer. Um, it's very frustrating not to have one, although sometimes that is the answer now. Um, and it goes everywhere from the primary care to highly specialized centers such as ours, which has centers of excellence for various, many, many different rare diseases, to an even more specialized, I, I want to mention, which is that the NIH sponsored something called the Undiagnosis Disease Network. Uh, we're actually here at University of Pennsylvania, we're now a site for that, and I'm part of that program. And that's patients are sponsored, they get a letter from a physician, and they look to see, can you help me understand my disease? Unfortunately, not all of the patients who apply can be seen by any means, but that program is trying to say, okay, even when you've seen specialists, maybe we're missing something. So we screen for it, and maybe we can bring some very specialized scientific tools, genetic, metabolomic, other things, to identify either your disease or a new one that we could identify. But that is very specialized, a few people in a very wealthy country, such as ours. I think the spectrum is there. What we'd like to make sure is that people have the opportunity to have additional evaluations when it's when it's not. If something's not working right, there's something wrong. Can I add to what Peter's just saying? Because I think what he says is so important in terms of you know getting to the right specialists and having those kinds of sites. And certainly, you know, the unidentified um, uh, rare diseases centers in the U.S. have been a real example of what could be done, but very limited in terms of the accessibility. Um, one of the obviously the biggest challenge for patients and parents as well is just getting somebody to recognize the fact that there is something that is not ordinary. I mean, we go back to, and this is why we use the zebra so much in rare diseases, because, you know, it's the old training, you know, you look for what is common. And sometimes it can be very frustrating for parents, and especially for trying to get a diagnosis for a child when the physician says, I don't think so, I don't think so, you, you know, just go home. And, you know, we have so many examples of that. You know, we found in our own surveys, it can take up to seven years to get a diagnosis with some, up to 14 misdiagnoses along the way mm. because you can't get to the right person. So a lot of things are being done, I think, to help bridge that. We have seen a, a global commission in the, to end the diagnostic odyssey for children with rare diseases, which is really first and foremost educating patients and parents to actually be aware. But it doesn't do any good if the healthcare professionals, the front line, are not also, it's not just the education and awareness. And I think, Peter, you would know, it's that it's very frustrating for these physicians if they got nowhere to go. You know, you have a parent that keeps banging on your door, says, I really think something's wrong. You're kind of going, like, I got nowhere to go. We need to get better tools to them as well. And the AI is doing a great deal. There's a whole lot more that's being developed in that area, not fast enough, not available enough, but that's actually happening. Scleroderma is one of those examples that we think is so amazing in terms of the kind of work that's being done to educate frontline physicians around scleroderma, which is difficult. I don't know why I'm telling you this. <laughs> you know, this is a whole lot better than I do. But we work with the patients. They tell us, you know, these are multi-systemic issues that, you know, will show up in different ways. And so trying to get you know, frontline physicians, the tools so they can actually intervene, I think is so important. So it's that empowering, and again, the scleroderma community is a big one, right? Empowering the patients to be partners with the physicians to help improve that diagnosis, I think is so essential. And then after that, you know, you need to have all the other things that Flamini and Peter are talking about. But if we can't get over that first hurdle and if parents keep falling to the pit of nobody wanting to believe them or to take it up, then we can't get them, you know, into where all of these resources could be available. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Tina, could I, I have you talk a little bit about um, what is happening at NIH 
Um, and then maybe I can come to Flaminia about um, the, the, the funding that's available you know, in, in international agencies. And, um, and I'm thinking particularly of basic research. Um, how is basic research being funded at NIH and how is it being funded globally? And is, is that enough being done? So Tina, let's start with you. Oh, I think you're on mute, Tina. Apologize for that. Wouldn't be a Zoom call if, uh, <laughs> if somebody wasn't on mute. So um, the NIH is doing a lot of basic research in the area of rare diseases. I think that if, if you look at the NIH as a whole and you look at what they do is one thing that people forget is there are 27 different institutes and centers at NIH. And all of these centers are looking at multiple different diseases. So it's not just one center or one office, like the office I work in is the Office of Rare Disease Research. We're not the only place that rare disease research takes place at NIH. Every institute at the NIH is doing basic research in the rare diseases to gain better understanding in rare diseases. The different types may fall into, if it's a blood disease, it would go to heart, lung, and blood. Um, if it's happening in childhood, the National um, NICHD, Child Health Institute will be looking at it. Aging would look at aging. So the rare diseases are scattered all across the NIH. So one thing that's important to remember is there's a group of people that are very interested in, in rare disease that come together to discuss where are we going, what's happening, how is this happening, is there good communication? So it it may be difficult to, to, to search the NIH and say, what are we doing specifically in rare diseases and find it. If you search under specific areas, you'll be able to find it because there are 7,000 diseases and we are looking at very many of them. Um, mm -hmm. From the clinical aspect, there's a lot of coordination with the clinical trials. Um, we're encouraging the basic scientists to work with the clinical scientists and have good communication back and forth. So. Mm -hmm. Here's a great deal. Peter is is has benefited greatly from the NIH <laughs> in his I, great work. I, 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 I and I hope to continue to benefit. So I think it's <laughs> uh, no, we we the NIH generously funded a variety of different rare disease initiatives and trials. And I would say, um, you know, you ask about funding, and I'll and I'll and I'll jump over to I'll let Laminia say internationally. You know, in the U.S. and abroad, I work very I work with lots of people around the world. And I think there's government-sponsored science like the NIH to investigators at individual academic centers. There's a lot of rare disease research hiding in plain sight because people are looking at a particular pathway, a particular thing, right. any rare disease as a model for that. It's not always, I'm gonna find these patients to study that. It's sometimes something else that's going on. And then linking that is what's important. Um, from a uh, international, there's there's a lot of funding in other countries that, that are done. There's also an increasing amount of funding from the biomedical and biopharmaceutical industry. And there's a reason for that. Um, it's an incredibly lucrative industry that's made a lot of money. And they have found that it is, in fact, profitable to make drugs for rare diseases because they're able to charge a good amount of money in a variety of countries to make it back. And there is a market people want we, we need, we're desperate need for proper treatments in rare diseases. We can talk about the economics of this and the fairness of this, but the fact is it has driven research that's being done in these rare diseases. And I think it's important to remember research in rare diseases can have benefit for many common diseases and vice versa. Research in common diseases can have great benefit for research in rare diseases. There's not a dividing line, a wall at our academic, at, in our, down the hall here. 
and so we do it. But I, I think internationally it varies, but there is increasing interest in being able to sponsor research in rare disease, and maybe uh, Flaminia can speak to that as well. Yes, so very briefly, what I can say is that as RDI, so at international level, what we can try to do, we are trying to do it, is to provide a platform for discussion with pharmaceutical companies to develop specific strategies for low and middle income countries. Because if pharmaceutical companies directly apply their access strategies everywhere in contexts that are extremely diverse, we will not um, we will not get to a position where we leave no one behind. We will certainly leave many, many persons living with the rare disease behind. And I'd like to underline that it's not only about the costs, it's really about how do we develop specific strategies for the needs and the specificities in the uh, local countries, local regions, local markets, if we want to call it this way. So this is really an appeal and we try to promote this type of dialogue. Mm -hmm. So can I just add again on the international level, though an RDI is a member of the um, International Rare Disease you know, Research Consortium, of which NIH, of course, is a huge partner. Chris Austin was just uh, uh, the uh, former chair of that uh, consortium. And the goal with the consortium is to bring together internationally all of the researchers in rare diseases. So there are certainly countries that are investing in rare diseases. There is industry that's investing in rare diseases. And there are other kinds of research foundations, et cetera, that investing in rare diseases coming together to do collaborative programs. And that actually has some huge value, obviously, because it makes sure that you know people that are working in similar areas are actually able to kind of coordinate and collaborate and work together. It also means that um, there's that kind of sharing in terms of um, the actual resources that are there and a real focus in terms of what the goals are and there are some very specific projects within there some of that you know for many and others have alluded to and it's been hugely important that major countries and major institutes like nih have also taken a huge role in it so you know it's um probably is you know you know one third maybe it's coming out of north america and a third coming out of europe and a third coming out of other countries japan china you know other countries that are doing the research in rare diseases as well coming together so i think the more we can encourage that kind of collaboration the more we will be able to see some of the the benefits coming out of it um and, and I think, uh, and, and recently, uh, over the last five years, they've introduced, as we said, a specific patient consortium in there, recognizing that the importance of having patients involved in many of these uh, collaborative projects. So this, I think, is hopefully, you know, a way that we can kind of bring some of that um, pooling also, not just of knowledge, but of resources together. Mm -hmm. I, I, Sean, I, I just want to add, I think, from a clinical research standpoint, when you're trying to bring therapies in, diagnostic testing, it is almost essential in many diseases to work internationally. Rare diseases are in fact rare, and therefore it's hard to recruit to get enough patients to study properly. The goal is you still need to do proper science and proper studies. And I think what we have seen in fields I'm in and others, those fields that have advanced the most have had the most international collaboration. Uh, I, I was involved in helping to uh, honor with others to direct some international studies. And we have had studies with 
up to 100 sites in four or five continents. And it is only with international can you often get enough patients to study properly to do this. So there is both, it's both scientifically enriching and it is practical to work mm -hmm. collaboratively, in, especially in the clinical research space. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. There's a, a few things that we've just covered in the last few minutes that I'd like to dig into a little bit more. And Flamini, I'm gonna come back to you. What are some of the unique challenges in low-income countries with um, getting, um, identifying these rare diseases as uh, Durhan talked about earlier, um, doing research, getting resources to them. Can, could you talk to those, those challenges? Yeah, well, I can be very brief because it's really a matter of the overall healthcare systems, right? It's not only, actually it's about the healthcare system, but also about the social system. So there is a lot of, um, of improvement that will need to happen uh, in order for countries everywhere, low and middle income countries to, to be able to integrate all what can be offered. So this is, I mean, I know that Doreen, you're very active in that as well. I mean, the focus on low and mid middle income countries is something we really need to promote. I cannot tell you now how exactly we will do that but we need to start to put the problem of rare diseases at a level which is truly global we need to integrate all different stakeholders we need to discuss together and we need to define some strategies that are more specific to low and middle income countries that we have done till now so i don't know Doreen, you want to add something maybe on this Sure, I don't mind. I mean, we've seen both top-down and bottom-up strategies, right? So Flaminia will know that we're working with the United Nations to introduce a resolution on rare diseases. We hope that at a policy level that we'll actually get governments to think about rare diseases as part and parcel of not just healthcare, but their social and their economic development. So that's really important, having rare diseases in there. Um, as we did last um, two years ago with universal health coverage, again, as Flaminia says, it's not just a matter of are we doing anything for rare diseases in many countries, what are we doing about healthcare and how much of that is a priority? So universal health coverage really, again, pushed the countries to say, you cannot have economic development, you cannot develop on the social development goals of the UN unless you're actually taking care of the health of people. So urging countries to bring in universal health coverage. And within that, we asked for and we got a special um, line to recognize rare diseases in there as a neglected population. So it's making sure that as countries are doing more in terms of their health and economic and social development, that they don't forget the rare diseases. We can't wait until you kind of got everything in place. So that's been really important. I think beyond that, of course, there are a lot of bottom-up strategies. It's working with countries and empowering uh, countries to actually do things on their own. I heard the most amazing you know, story about the geneticists in the Philippines who had introduced newborn screening, talk about diagnostic programs, you know, that's so important. One drop of blood, you can identify up to 60, you know, genetic diseases. And in the Philippines, they introduced the, uh, uh, the program on newborn screening for a number of metabolic diseases. It was in the middle of a typhoon. And she's saying, oh my gosh, I've got these samples and I have to get them to a lab in a certain amount of time. She got the Coast Guard, she got the police, she got the people there. And she says, we have 400 islands. They went from island to island, picking up the samples to get them to her laboratory in time to have them tested in the middle of a typhoon. Hmm. You know, this was the commitment to having these, that support those local initiatives, making sure that local, you know, uh, 
uh, you know, uh, clinics, local specialists, local GPs, pediatricians are also brought into it. So I think it's working bottom, you know, top down, it's working bottom up. And beyond that, it's also, as we're saying, looking at strategies that as we're investing in these, we're asking for investments that will be global. The same as we do for vaccines, the same as we do for infectious diseases, right? The same as we do for some of the cancers. Let us have those kinds of multilateral, multi-stakeholder, you know, uh, consortia that can help us think about what do we do in terms of not leaving behind, as Lonina mm-hmm. says, those in the low middle what is, if I may add, what is very important to underline here is that universal health coverage means three things that need to be combined together. So it's more services covered, and in this case, it's more services for persons living with the rare disease. It's a bigger population, so it's more people covered, and it's less out of pocket by patients and families. So it's three elements that need to be combined in order to get to universal health coverage. And as Duran was was saying, we are promoting rare diseases as a human rights priority towards the United Nations because it's the whole aspects of the life of people with rare diseases that is impacted. Great. Uh, So, Peter, I want to come to you in a minute uh, just to talk about the orphan drug program. Uh, But before I do, uh, Tina, I I wanted to bring you back into the conversation. Uh, So uh, according to the statistics that I've read, about 390 of the 7,000 diseases that are are categorized as rare diseases affect about 98% of the rare disease population. So uh, um, I think Durhain might have mentioned this before, a, a fairly small number of of diseases impacts a, a, um, a large part of the rare disease population. Um, <clears throat> how do we best allocate resources for optimal benefit? Uh, we talked a little bit earlier about leaving people behind. Uh, with 7,000 diseases to cover, how can you possibly do that? And should we be looking at focusing our attention on these 390 diseases? And then what happens to those that have the, the really rare, rare diseases? I, I think that we need to to think differently about how we're working on things. I think that the focus has always been on one disease at a time, and that's been very problematic. I, I think that what we really need to do is think of groups of diseases that can be studied together, um, clinical trial designs that can be done so multiple diseases could go through a trial at the same time. I, I think that groups just need to work more together. I, I, I think, you know, picking and choosing who gets to go first is is not going to work. Um, the science won't be there because sometimes science might be there for one disease that one person has and we can have a treatment and a cure. And are you going to say no because it's one person? Of course not. But for that one person, you can learn. I, I, I think you know, it, it's horrible to say to make things cost effective, we need to work together. And it's, you know, rare disease groups coming together and maybe using the same infrastructure to build a registry together so they can be tracking the natural history of a disorder. So the cost isn't so much, the, the, the burden isn't on just one group, but on multiple groups together um, to let a larger group, let a smaller group dovetail and, you know, ride the coattails of the work that they're doing and collect their data. Um, I. You know, it's not an easy question, but I I think that 
we have to work together. We need to come up with new models of, of working collaboratively rather than separating each disease and going disease by disease because that's, it, it's not sustainable. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you very much for that. Uh, so, um, Peter, let me come to you. Uh, many years ago, the US Congress instituted the orphan drug program, and I think this is possibly where the term orphan drug and orphan diseases originally came from. Um, and this was administered through the FDA. Um, what are your feelings about the success of this program? Maybe, maybe you could briefly describe it for the audience and then talk about the success or failures of the program. It's almost 40 years ago, I think it was 1983, Congress first passed the Orphan Drug Act. Uh, this is so, it's important to remember that the Food and Drug Administration is directed by acts of Congress, and that's they're given their, their charge for how to do things. The Orphan Drug Act, which has been amended and since then, was really a fundamental change in thinking about studying rare diseases. Uh, they used the term orphan drug. Um, and it, what it has allowed is it basically creates a easier pathway for drug approval and review by the Food and Drug Administration. Um, the Food and Drug Administration does an extraordinarily comprehensive review of new drugs, and there's a complex process. And to be honest, many countries look to the FDA for guidance because of the resources that we have put into the FDA. So it has a very disproportionate impact on world health. It is not alone. The EMA does a very similar approach as to PNMA and Japan and other places, and they've done some similar work on orphan drugs since then. But in the past nearly 40 years, what has happened is it has said, we're going to make it, we're going to facilitate studying rare diseases and getting your drugs through the process and approved. We're going to make it easier with not as large trials necessary. And it's not really a shortcut. It's scientifically very sound and safe, but it's recognizing some of the unique aspects of rare disease and facilitating that. It also gives some protection to companies so they can keep their patents a little longer, et cetera. So it is both scientifically, logistically, and business-wise helps stimulate work in rare disease. Has it worked? It has definitely worked. I think everybody would agree. If you look at these graphs, the number of drugs approved for rare diseases has gone up tremendously since the act was started, even more so than the number of drugs that we're getting anyway, which is quite a lot. And I think when you talk to, and I work with companies to help to develop drugs and other things, they will say having something actually labeled as a rare disease is helpful in their development program. And so it's this actually stimulus. So government action works. It is similar in Europe and in other parts of the world where this has been done. So this is a successful government intervention, recognizing a problem, saying, let's facilitate and make this work. And it has been extremely successful uh, in the United States and around the world. And so it's worked, it's worked well. Um, and I think that's what I'll say. Great. Um, Flaminia, I, do th are there similar programs that are, are internationally in other countries, or is this fairly unique uh, to the U.S.? No, there are the countries who have uh, the similar um, legislation than the Orphan Drug Act. I mean, uh, for sure, uh, in Europe, there is the Orphan Medicinal Products le legislation. Uh, I know in Japan, there is something specific, uh, or maybe not the rain is... Uh, it's not. No, go ahead. Yeah, no other country has really done the same as the U.S. and Europe. Obviously, the EU came in as well. And 
you know, the EU was very deliberate. They said, oh, my gosh, all the research is going to the U.S. We need an orphan drug act because we need to have research investment. It was a deliberate effort, right? I mean, it made sense. I will say what the U.S. did really well at the same time. They not only did the FDA, the orphan drug act, they brought in the NIH Office of Rare Diseases. That was huge because it really added that research component to also help in the study of the rare diseases, understanding the causes of the rare diseases, those two together were powerful. And the EU did much of the same. There are in fact, huge research consortium that was funded by the EU. So again, those are the two powerhouses that really fueled the um, research into rare diseases and the development treatments of rare diseases. But this is where Flamini and I both talk about a lot is that it kind of stops because these are expensive therapies, despite the fact that these acts were brought in because these drugs were meant to be, you know, brought to, you know, give, given support to bring to market because they would never be profitable. They are in fact profitable and they're very expensive in some cases because there are so few people. But it means that in low and middle income countries, there's no hope in terms of getting access. A startling statistic I saw was that in fact, fewer than 10% of the people for whom there is an, a rare disease drug actually get access to it, even in the US. And around the world, fewer than 1% of people who might be eligible for rare disease treatment get access to the treatment. This is a disaster. Part of it's diagnosis, part of it's having clinical expertise. And so for many of talked about these collaborative global networks that are there, better diagnostic tools. But part of it is just because the economics of it are not sustainable for low and middle income countries. And I'm not faulting the pharmaceutical companies. That is not my goal here. But I think unless we have better strategies or how we're going to make these therapies available, we will start, we will have a continuing, you know, kind of divide between not just rich countries that can get these drugs, it'll be rich patients in rich countries that'll get these drugs yeah. and everybody else that is going to not be able to benefit. So we need to start thinking globally about how do we make these therapies available. And I think that's a, a huge challenge. Um, you know, and it, you know, some of the things are working well, I mean, the FDA has also stepped forth in terms of being able to do things like doing regulatory uh, approvals that other countries are picking up. Not every country needs to do its own regulatory approval. You know, those are the kind of things, but we need the deliberate strategy for getting these therapies more globally accessible. Mm -hmm. I just want to amend, I, I agree with all of that. I think that it's important to recognize it's not just <clears throat> a single act of Congress or a single act of the European Union. It, it, it also comes at the right time. There's been a revolution in biopharmaceutical industry and our, the biologic drugs and these various things. Everything comes together. More general infrastructure for clinical investigation, better drugs that are coming out at the right time. But you need all of these factors to come together, and it has. And then, honestly, the success that some companies and diseases have had breeds more success. People look to a mm -hmm. company and say, look, they were able to do that in rare disease. We could do that. And now most companies have a rare disease unit that they try to go forward on. In terms of the, but but government can make a difference. Look at what's happened with the COVID-19 vaccine, the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. It is pretty obvious that putting tremendous investment has stimulated that to be done. Now, on the flip yep. side, we have the same distribution problem where we have it being given vaccination is going greatly in the much wealthier countries and is much slower and problematic in less wealthy countries. And we need to address that on a ethical international scale, but it does that we shouldn't lose track of the successes, but we should try to spread those successes more broadly. 
Mm -hmm. And this is Tina. One of the things I think is really important, Peter, is that you you bring all the players to the table who are involved. It's very easy to 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 sit on an interview like this and say we must do this and we must do that, and you know, giving directions and you know you got to do it. We have to do it is very easy, but bringing together all the players to the table, bringing together the patients, bringing together industry, bringing together the payers, the insurers, the, you know, the medical associations, the doctors, you know, everyone needs to understand what responsibilities each group has. And until everyone listens to all the players at the table, it's not going to work because everyone's going to be worried about their own interest. You know, it's clinicians have their own interests. Industry has their own interests and responsibilities, basically. Mm -hmm. But I, I think it's important that we start bringing people together from various areas to, to talk about how can we actually make this happen rather than saying we must. But it's the how that's the problem right now. Mm -hmm. You have an example in the, in the not that distant past, which is it's not a perfect example, but care for patients with HIV infection was very much concentrated in certain countries. There was some international effort coming together to try to improve access in poorer nations. And it was a combination of pharmaceutical industries, uh, scientists, clinicians, and governments, and including with the US. And it really did make a difference. It's not perfect, but it's made a very big difference uh, in the global epidemic of HIV in being able to get drugs to other countries. So it, I agree with you, Tina, and it was because people worked together and said, we should do this. So I think there's a lot of goodwill, there's ways to do this, but it's 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 complicated. Yeah, everyone wants to, to cure the patients, everyone wants treatments for the patients, but making that happen is, is, is challenging. But as you were saying, and we were, I think we all agree on one point for sure, is that we need to bring all these different stakeholders together. And this is the platform we are trying to create. Mm -hmm. There are lots of examples, there are lots of models. I think as Peter says, HIV is one of them. There's also the models on the, um, you know, the consortium around um, infectious diseases, neglected and infectious diseases. There's the whole vaccine Gabby, you know, approach, mm -hmm. you know, to it. There's the hepatitis C, you know, example of what was done when the WHO stepped in to say, you got it, you know, either you're going to make it available or you're going to have to outsource the drugs, you know, one way or the other, right? So I think, I think it is very much the way, as Tina says, you know, how do we bring people together? How do we do it? But there are lots of models if there's the will to do it. Um, I don't know. Sometimes it seems overwhelming to say when you think about how many times. <laughs> well, I, th I think I think where it gets overwhelming is when you look at there. If you look at how many people have HIV and all cancers combined, and and if you bring that that number together, there's still more people with rare diseases than have all those conditions combined. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a big number. It's a diverse group of people. How can we find commonalities so we can work together and, and say, we're doing this for rare diseases rather than we're doing this for disease A and then we're gonna do it for disease B and you know it's, it's never gonna happen. But I, I think we need to, to work as a community. And the people's voice matter. Patients' voices really matter. Uh, elected officials listen sometimes to their, elect their, their, their electorate. And in fact, it is the advocacy by patient groups that helped push all of this along. It's not scientists do it, officials do it. It is a lot of different voices uh, moving things forward. Patient advocacy groups have been very helpful 
not just in partnering in research and helping us prioritize research, but in advocating for uh, research and distribution in this space. But it's as you say, though, both of you, it's also it has to be done in partnership. The patient voice out there, just being a shrill patient voice, doesn't do anything. We've got to, and I think we've seen some great examples in terms of how these partnerships, there's an opening up in the research community, opening up in the clinical community, opening up in, in the pharma industry where the patients can actually have an effective voice. And I think that's made all the difference, you know? So we, I always say, you know, you can demonstrate as much as you want outside the gates, unless you can get inside the gates, it makes no difference. So we have to be able to get to the table. We have to have a seat at the table, but we've got to do that as a partner as well. You still have to have people banging on the gates outside. Otherwise nobody listens, but you know, it's, you know, but you have to have people brought in as well. So appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, you know, again, you, you're a fantastic panel because you're just addressing all of the questions I was just about to ask. So, um, I, I mean, what, what I really wanted to talk about and I think close out with is, is this, idea of cooperation and collaboration, which seems to be coming up again and again. Uh, you know, it's got to be global, there's got to be partnerships. Um, so the two things that I wanted to just finish on as we, we have just a few minutes left is, the first is, what are the, what's the low hanging fruit? Where can we, we make easy, quick changes that will bring more collaboration and cooperation? And the other piece that I wanted to touch on is, is what are the impacts um, at a personal level, um, and Flaminia, I'm going to come to you for this, and Derhain as well, since you know you also you have um, family members, children who are impacted by rare disease. So maybe I'll, we'll just go around, and each of you can talk to those. So what are the, what's the low-hanging fruit that we can address right now, and what are, what do you see as the, the more personal impact? So um, Derhain, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I don't know about low-hanging fruit. I kind of feel like we took all the low-hanging fruit already. I think we're really being forced down to climb up into those trees and really work it hard the way Tina and Peter and, and Flamini have talked about. I think we need to make that those big efforts now. So I, I think we ate up the low-hanging fruit. Um, so for us, in terms of patients, I think the impact is still there. And I have been so encouraged, I think, by the ability of patients to actually have a voice. And part of it is very much all the other consortium, all the other stakeholders opening up to recognize the value of the patient voice. This is this was not there 40 years ago when we first had the orphan drug app. So I think it's made a huge difference. And I think we've increasingly become partners in this enterprise. So that for me is the way forward. So really, I think very much so in terms of appreciation of how much the communities have been able to come together. Mm -hmm. um, Flaminia, why don't we come to you next? Yes, so for me, it's crucial to understand that all aspects of a human lives are impacted by living with the rare disease far beyond only health concerns, of course. Health concerns are extremely important, but the impacts really go from from the very beginning, from inclusion in, in kindergarten, in school, in university, that means inclusion in education. And this has a direct impact on employment opportunities. On if we don't change the working conditions, the adapt, we, we don't adapt the environment, we don't adapt working hours. So this also impacts on the overall impoverishment of, of people living with rare diseases, the lack of autonomy. So it also impacts on the opportunities for, for leisure, for traveling, for social interactions, opportunities to develop a life's project, even as pragmatic as getting a loan 
or and of course there are huge aspects that are impacted by stigma and discrimination so for families worrying constantly social isolation most parents become primary caregivers and so these they also have to stop working or having less working hours so and in this very often it's even worse for women that we often become the primary or even only caregiver so we talk a lot about the impact and i think there is an increasing uh, understanding of the impact on on people's life when it comes to their patient aspect being you know their health concerns but the overall impact is very often underestimate and in terms of society we talk a lot about uh, the burden on society but of treating but did we really think enough about the burden on society of not treating so i would finish like that great thank you flaminia uh peter i i agree with all of my colleagues it's been a terrific conversation i really enjoyed it uh stimulating i think it's important to keep working on respecting the scientific and societal impact of studying rare diseases, as well as encourage the collaboration internationally. But really it's about keeping rare disease in the conversation, in the conversation about healthcare, about society, about science, and, rec and just keeping it in the conversation overall, as all of these issues are designed. There are some unique aspects that Melinia uh, just very nicely put forward. And then there are some common aspects as well in the study of rare diseases. So as a physician scientist studies rare diseases, keep it, in, I, I, I can learn from all of these aspects, but keep these diseases in the conversation as we create scientific programs, as we create legislation, as we create new avenues for healthcare. Mm -hmm. Great, and uh, Tina, I'm gonna give you the last word. Oh my, <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> Well, it, it's hard to beat what everyone else said, so it's difficult going last. I think a low, a low-hanging fruit in my mind is getting people to come to the table and talk to each other. What is simpler than, well, maybe not during COVID, but we can always <laughs> Zoom. But but bringing people and starting the dialogue between all the players, and, and that is not difficult because I, I believe that everyone agrees at the end of the day, we all want the same thing. We want treatments, we want cures, we want the patients to have better quality of life and to get the players to start talking to each other, to start making inroads of making that happen, to get the treatments to the patients easier, to get the patients diagnosed faster. Until we all come together, it's going to be very challenging. So I think that is my final word. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, Tina, and also um, to all of the other participants. Um, we are out of time, so we are going to have to end our discussion here. Um, you've been an amazing panel, so thank you for making time in your very busy schedules to join us and help me and our viewers understand more about this very important topic. Uh, it really has been an honor and a pleasure. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, this webinar is just the first in a year-long series so please look out for more webinars um, at webinar.sciencemag.org. Um, thank you once again to our fantastic panel and to Foundation Ibsen for enabling this conversation through their kind sponsorship. Goodbye, everyone, and thanks again. Thank you.